Welcome to the Dylan Experience. My name is Dylan Sessler, your host. Uh, today is episode 23, and I have an incredible guest lineup for you. This, this is going to be a fun one. Um, my next guest is a first responder wellness coach who has built her own business based on personal life experiences, education, uh, and trainings. Her goal has always been to pay it forward to her fellow first responders who may be struggling with trauma. She offers one-on-one coaching and a first responder oriented app, which is really interesting. I want to get into that. That contains a lot of different mindfulness tactics and techniques to help heal from chronic trauma. My next guest is AK Dezanti. And if you want to find out more about her, check out her website, www.lifesaverwellness.com. AK or Amanda K, whatever, <laughs> however you want to be addressed. Um, I just love AK because it's badass, but um, how are you? Appreciate it. <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So tell me, tell me about you. Like, obviously there's an introduction, but you didn't get there by, but without, without a story. So tell me, tell me about how you became a first responder wellness coach. You know, what's your story? What, what's the, what's the deal behind how you became you? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and thank you for your service as well. I am from the bottom of my heart, grateful for you. Um, so I, I grew up, um, out in the middle of nowhere and, uh, I ended up going to Kent state. Um, I only applied to one college and I was like, this is, they're either going to accept me or they're not. Um, they waitlisted me. And then I was like, oh crap, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I ended up getting in. Um, I initially wanted to go into the military and my family threw a fit. And so I was like, yeah, well, okay, I'll be a cop instead. Um, so at, uh, at 19, I started working some undercover online investigations, um, as an auxiliary officer. And then at 20, I went through the Academy, um, here in Ohio, you can't actually be a commissioned officer and carry a gun until you're 21. So, um, it was kind of unique that I was able to go through so young. Interesting. And, um, what I didn't realize, um, at the time was that I had, uh, experienced some trauma in my life prior to that. Um, the biggest one probably was the death of my lifelong best friend at 17. She took her own life. And, um, I had not processed that. I was only, you know, two years later, I was jumping into the field. And, um, from that point I was high speed, low drag, and I had not processed anything and took on at that point, a, a ton of accumu- you know, cumulative stress, um, different traumas and, and things. So I went from, uh, working my undercover online investigations to grabbing a full-time job as a deputy sheriff. Um, did that for several years until about 2015. And in the, in February of 2015, I was named officer of the year for my agency. And by September I was completely burned out. I was done. Um, I spent about a month off until I started working again. And during that month, I slept for about 18 hours a day, every single day. Um, I had adrenal fatigue. I had PTS. I had depression. Um, and my body just needed a break. Um, 
So at that point, then I began my position um, as a criminal court victim advocate, which allowed me to kind of start seeing things from a different point. Um, I wasn't getting firsthand trauma anymore. I was getting secondhand um, just from hearing all the stories. And then it kind of hit me that uh, I had some healing to do. And of course, rather than (laughs) do the healing, I I piled on more obligation as a trauma response. Um, So I went back during that time, working full time, went back and got my master's degree. I was planning a wedding and um, also decided to attend a 10 month yoga teacher training and dive back into that as a, as a mode of healing. So, um, you know, piled on all of the things and I left that position in August of 2020. And I took some time off, uh, for just to be with family and, um, self-exploration and, Last year, 2021, it hit me like a lightning bolt that I needed to take all of these things, my experience, my education, my training, and put them into one and funnel it back to my first responders. What, why, why did you feel like you needed to do that? I'm curious. Um, very simple because I was not serving anymore. Um, it broke my heart to leave full-time law enforcement. I felt like I was leaving everyone behind. Um, and of course they didn't see it that way. They're like, we're still out here doing our thing. And I'm like, yeah. And I want to be, Mm -hmm. and I want, you know, every time I see a car pulled over or a a cruiser pulled over or whatever, I'm like, I want to jump out and be their backup. Right. And so I felt like I needed to, I still had the urge to serve. And if I can do it in a different way and in a unique way that's needed, then by all means, I have to, it's just not even an option. I have to. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, obviously we talked a little bit about Samantha poor and and her, her episode um, Mm -hmm. of my podcast. Do you, do you feel, you know, cause I kind of asked her this question, do you feel like what you do is well-received or, or is it, is it a difficult sell to agencies and departments and first responders in general? Um, yes and no. I think that in the beginning, there's a lot of resistance yeah. because this is uncomfortable stuff to talk about. Um, because I, I have the hard conversations. I go in deep and I'm like, you know, we need to talk about, uh, suicide awareness and prevention and, uh, intervention, but I'm not talking about when you respond to a call, I'm talking about in-house. I'm talking about when your buddy comes to you and says, I'm struggling and we don't want to have those conversations because that makes it real. Then we're forced to admit that it's a problem. Um, so initially I get a lot of resistance. Um, but once I really start talking and they can sense that, truly I've been there and that I kind of know a a thing or two about what I'm talking about. Um, they start to warm up. And when I talk about it in real terms and I'm not, um, coming from a clinical approach, 
it hits different and, mm-hmm. and then they start to warm up. And then I, you know, I, I did, I, cause I also do agency trainings and, um, I did a presentation a couple months ago and I had a, an individual who was a fire captain with 33 years of service on come up to me afterwards and cry and say, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to sit through. Um, and he told me his whole story and, um, I could tell he had been holding that in for quite some time, but you know, when we can open the door and allow people to walk through it, that's what we need to do. Right. How do you, so how do you do that? How do you open the door for, for guys like, you know, not just guys like a 33 year, you know, fire captain, but these hardened, hardened officers who see, you know, your chronic trauma, you know, it's, it's such a, it's funny. Cause like you said, you know, your, your family responded to how you wanted to go into the military. We're like, Oh, that's dangerous. I, you know, no. And, and then you go into a profession that I think from being in the military is more dangerous. Like that, like, that's just my experience is like, I work with in the national guard because I'm currently serving. I still work with guys that do the cop job on, on a full-time status. And then they come to drill, like the stories they, they bring me. It's like, that's far more dangerous than anything we, we do. Sure. We go to Afghanistan, we go to Iraq, we go to deploy, but that's for a year. You know, there's hostility every single day of their lives as a, as a cop. That's you're dealing with the hardest, like the hardest and most uh, aggressive people in society as a, as a police officer. And how do you open that door for these guys that deal with that every single day to create vulnerability. How do you do that? I let them know that they're not alone. And I give them, and and I don't like to harp on statistics, but I give them some of the statistics so that they're aware that one in four law enforcement officers has considered suicide. One in four. And that's huge. And so I, when I stand there in a, in a room full of, you know, these hardened first responders and I say, you know, six of you statistically have considered suicide, you've flirted with the idea. And that's a normal reaction to the abnormal situations that you were put into every single day. You're not broken. There's no shame around it. You don't have to hide it. If we can start talking about it, then we can shift the standard for wellness and, and we can show that we are human beings and we need to stop pretending like we're not. Um, so it's really just getting very real with them, allowing them to be self-aware by seeing that other people are, you know, even their buddies are experiencing the same things and nobody's talking about it. So how do you know if nobody's talking about it? How do you know? So that's why we need to open the door and continue to open the door and connect with other people who are doing similar things like me and you having this conversation now um, so that we can kind of build this safety net and start catching people. And, and, you know, because I feel like we're missing people in the blind spots because when you and, and, you know, I know you had some experiences yourself, but when we're in the, the thick of it we don't look outward for help. We're just trying to survive. And so when we, as the ones who are 
doing this as, as a profession um, can reach out and say, hey, I see you. You're me. You're me seven years ago. Right. Let's talk about it. Yeah, that, you know, the, the, cult, the cultural competency makes a big difference. Right. And, and that's what I think is really interesting, you know, because I, I occasionally get kind of backlash from people that are like, you know, you're not qualified to do the work that you do. And I'm like, that's, that's fair, right? I'm not qualified on a, on a, with a piece of paper that, and an education that's supported by research in a direction, you know, but there's like people don't know what they don't know. And, and when we really look at the, that concept and, and you look at what we're actually talking about, we have no idea what mental health really means yet, right? We're working towards it. We're having conversations now. I think the, the reality is being more open, but the problem is, is that the mental health system, the public mental health system, and even the private one as well is, is missing people or it's hurting people. And so that, that means that there's a large like group of people that is not looking for help because they won't, they won't go to the public system, the private system. And so they're looking for people like us that have a, an understanding of both of, of what it means to not look for help and also what it means to be, um, to be understanding of what this knowledge and, uh, uh, you know, the understanding of what these people actually study, like psychology and, um, you know, how, how mental health and, and physical health and brain health and trauma and all these things that, that therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, all of them study um, and try and bring them that, that kind of middle ground. And I think you're right. We're, we're the safety net for, for the people that get, left behind. And quite frankly, you know, first responders are probably one of the first people to say, I'm not going in to see that I'm not going to work within the system because I know the system, the system will fuck me over probably. And that's, that's an interesting thing to, to kind of discuss is like, you know, what was, what was your experience with, you know, what happens when you say I'm struggling in a department, what happens when you say, you know, Hey, Sheriff, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty terrible about myself. I'm, I've seen all of this stuff. What do you want me to do? You know, one in that you brought up a statistic, one in four think of suicide. That seems awfully low. Like I, I don't, Oh, that's well, it's self-reported. So, yeah. oh, you man. know, the, the ability to, to admit that, right. That I can't, I, I can't agree with that. I, I, it has to be. more. Oh, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. And I, I challenge the statistics on officer suicide last year, 2021, they said 150. I'm telling you as a law enforcement officer who had a period of suicidal ideation, it's much higher because I often would sit in my cruiser and think of ways to make it look like an accident. Yeah. Because of my pride. And I can guarantee you, and that's a, that's a hard thing for people to swallow, Yeah, but I can guarantee you that that is, um, there, there are some accidents out there that were not accidents. Yeah. And, and just pushing into situations that 
you know, you should, probably should have called for backup, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even either that or, you know, I can't tell you the number of times that I thought, well, just what if, what if I went left to center? What if I, you know, and it's, it took me a lot of years to be able to even verbalize that. Um, and you mentioned, you know, going into your department and saying, I'm struggling. I didn't, I just left. Yeah. I, I, I left. And then when I signed up a, a couple of months later for my master's degree, I said, well, I left cause I wanted to further, further my education. You know, I had to right. keep, keep my face. Right. Yeah. And because we're, we're held in such high esteem within our community that we, we feel like we're not able, we're not allowed to let people down. And so for years, I would say, you know, I left so that I could further my education. That was bullshit. I left because I wanted to kill myself and I couldn't do it anymore. And it took me a very long time to be able to say that out loud. It's really interesting because that, that it's so relatable to my own story, right? Like there was, there's a lot of a lot of pieces of that are that are relatable in very different ways. You know, like I, I wouldn't kill myself because of what my dad did. My dad committed suicide. It's when I was six years old. Um, and so rather than doing it myself, I joined the military. Um, and for the first four, four years of my career, I was like, how can I get to a place where I can die more or less? And so my, my first deployment to Afghanistan was that goal. Um, Obviously, that didn't happen, thankfully, um, but I saw some things that really uh, started to kind of reshape my perspective on life and death. Um, and I think that's a huge, a huge kind of perspective shift when you start to see things like that outside of yourself. You know, like you, you think about death for so long um, that when you don't necessarily pay attention to what's happening outside of you, um, and you actually start noticing it. I, I think that that perspective on life and death, like what does it mean to live? What does it mean to die? What is, you know, what does it mean to have others live and die? Um, it really starts to make you question. That's where I think I first started to question, you know, whether I should commit suicide or not, rather than wait for, for death. Because I was like, I've been to Afghanistan. There wasn't a fucking scratch on my body, you know? Well, like, am I going to live like this for the rest of my life? And how long is the rest of my life going to, how long am I going to wait around for something, you know, to kill me? Um, and so in, in many regards, there's, there's times where what you see in the line of duty, whether you're military or first responder kind of shapes what you actually perceive is, uh, you know, your, your own, your own visualization of life and death. And I imagine that, you know, military was hard enough with, with such a, such a deep transition to, you know, foreign country and then coming home and realizing like the, the simplicity of that foreign country and what we were doing with all the structure and coming home to nothing, no structure, you know, absolute freedom and independence. And it's like, what the fuck do I do? Um, and then you come into you know, you, you have to come into being like, I have to be a civilian again. You know, like, what do I do here? I don't even know. But yours, you know, like the, the, the police aspect or the mm-hmm. first responder aspect is so different. 
because you have to make that switch every single day that you work, you know, like I have a hard time going to drill and coming back and turning that switch off sometimes. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I've got to be, it's funny. Cause like I sit here and I'm a life coach, mental health coach. I help people, right. I, I train to help people live. And then I go to drill and I'm a sniper, right. I've got to turn that switch on to, to be able to, you know, canoe someone's head, right. Like if I have to, like as morbid as that might sound, like that's the, that's the reality of my job is I have to be able to end someone's life in an instant and be able to justify that within myself. And Mm -hmm. that's not easy. And you guys, you know, like that community has to do that even more. Like, tell me about that. You know, it's interesting because later today, and I, I actually schedule my Instagram posts and everything, but I have a graphic that's ready to go that I'm posting later today that says, are you blurring the lines between home and work? Yeah. And the, the caption is, of course you are. Of course you are. As a first responder, yeah. you suit up several times a week and, and you cross the threshold of your house several times a week. And you know, it's, you mentioned earlier about the difference between military and first responders. And, you know, it's, I would never, ever minimize what our, what our military men and women do. Um, but it's different Absolutely, because it's a very acute situation, you know, when you're deployed, but when you're, when you're living it for, you know, five, 10, 15, 30 plus years, and you're living in the community in which you serve or nearby, because, you know, most, most first responders aren't commuting an hour to work. Um, Some are for sure. Um, But, you know, people know you, you're in the public eye, there's nowhere to hide. Right. Many times people will know your, your significant, your significant other, your kids, they know where you live. And that's terrifying because as law enforcement, we've got big, big targets on our backs. And um, that was actually a big contributor to my burnout because 2015 was when Baltimore was hitting and there was um, a big spike in ambush attacks. And uh, I was a young female deputy living alone. And I was terrified that, you know, walking out of my house to take my dog out, that somebody would just blow my head off. Yeah. And that was, you know, it was increasing my hypervigilance, my paranoia. That's why I had adrenal fatigue was because I was giving myself these adrenaline dumps at every turn. Um, you know, I slept with my gun. I took my gun <laughs> out when I was taking my dog out to pee for two seconds. And I yeah. mean, it was just, I, I lived five minutes from where I worked and I would still take 15 minutes to drive home and go the long way. And just so I wouldn't be followed. Right. And, um, you know, part of that I'm sure was irrational. Um, but that's, that's things that, you know, most people who are not first responders would never understand. And, uh, it seems extreme, but it wasn't at the time. It made perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I talk about this every once in a while, but rationality to me is every feeling that you've ever had in your life is valid, right? There's cause and effect right? Is it logical is a different question, but (laughs) right. Like if there's, if there's validity, if you can create justification for it, it's a valid feeling. 
And I think the conversation is, is a really big struggle because people are like, that's not logical. And that's the only direction they come at it from, right? Like having this hypervigilance isn't logical, but I can't turn it off because you're not looking at it from a rational understanding that there's a cause and effect here. This is the effect. You don't know the cause. Well, and when you start to understand trauma, obviously you're, you're starting to look at the causes and you're starting to dig deeper into, yeah, I feel this way for a fucking reason. And, and it's a pretty, pretty profound reason when you really look at it. Um, it's such a, it, it's such a hard conversation to, you know, sit in front of someone that doesn't want to look at it. And, and I, I, I'm impressed uh, uh, with what you do because that's such a hard community to step into and say, Hey, here's this, here's this topic that I know none of you, none of you want to talk about, but I'm going to tell you about it and I'm going to talk to you about it. And I'm going to, I'm going to sit here, you know, having 90% of you guys probably look at me like I'm, I'm nuts or I'm crazy or I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a coward or I'm a wuss or whatever you want to talk, you know, whatever stigma comes from talking about mental health in that, in that realm. And then having one person at the end come up to you or having no one come up to you at the end, right? Like I can imagine you've probably dealt with both situations where you've had no one come up to you and you're like, did that even go over, you know, was that even <laughs> worth it? Um, and I'm sure obviously you've had like 33 year fire captain come up to you and be like, that was what I needed. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's remarkable. Like what, when that happens, when you have a situation where no one comes up to you at the end, no one talks to you about what you just taught them. What do you, what do you, what do you do internally? How do you deal with that? I honestly don't know that it even affects me because I know that if I were them, or when I was one of them, I wouldn't have gone up to anybody mm -hmm. afterwards. I wouldn't have gone up to that person. Um, and what I find is that when nobody comes up to talk to me afterwards and there's crickets, that's when I get the emails. Yeah. That's when I get people reaching out on their own. And because they don't want, I mean, the last thing they want is for somebody to see them talking to me afterwards. Right. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm good with it. You know, it, as long as you, you know, sit there and you hear my words, um, if it resonates great, if it doesn't, okay. But if it resonates five years from now, and then you reach out then mm -hmm. even better. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I, um, I'm good with it. I, I don't ever question whether or not it hits. It's just a matter of, you know, I hope that it never, you know, hits home truly, but if it does, then I'm here for it. And if it doesn't, but I have taught them how to talk to their buddy about it and that then saves somebody pure gold for me. Right. I don't need anything else. Awesome. I, I love the, I love the conviction to what you do. You know, that's, that's something I certainly, that's certainly relatable for me. Cause it's like, I don't, I don't make my TikToks for the people that, that, uh, that thank me, 
right? I, I make mm-hmm. them for the people that are, that want to have the conversation or argue with me because, um, I, you know, the thanks is it's to me, it's always been overrated. Like I, I don't need the thanks. I don't even want the thanks because if you're thanking me for, for like talking about suicide or th- saving your life, like you, you clearly have it wrong because if, if you think that me speaking words saved your life, then you're not appropriating the credit to who actually did the work. You know, you're, you're looking at me and saying, you spoke the words exactly how I needed them. No, man, you took them and did something with them. You processed something. And that's the beginning of the, the first phase of assaulting your feelings and, and having the, you know, having the fortitude and the tenacity to really dig into yourself and say, I need to change. I need to fix this. I need to help myself. Um, and so like, I don't do it for the things I do it for the people that, that want to step up and be like, um, I, I hate myself and I want to come to you, Dylan, because I hate myself so much that I'm willing to have you come in and tell me things that I do not want to fucking hear. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's why I do it. I, I, it, it, it's, it's such a hard job that I think you and I do at times that we, we don't, we don't even give ourselves credit for it sometimes. Um, it's just such a conviction for us sometimes that Mm -hmm. we don't do it for the thanks. We don't do it for the the pity or any other bullshit. We just do it because at one point we never had it and we know that people need it. And there's, there's not much else to it that, you know, we can, we can tiptoe around all, all the, the fluff, but the reality is, is like, we want to provide something in the future that we never had in the past. And it's quite simple. Well, and I think too, that it, just sharing our stories, that alone shows people that um, you can get out of that space. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when I was in the thick of it and I would be sitting alone in my house and the demons start creeping in. And, um, I, I really saw no way out. Yep. I really thought, well, you know, I, I there's only one option here right. and I'm not ready for that, but I'm still going to continue to think about it. And I think that us having shared our stories shows other people that you can go through something like that and get out the other side and thrive. And there really is hope and there really is a possibility of recovery. And I think that so often when you're in the thick of it, you just don't see that. And so even if it's just me sharing my story where, you know, somebody hears it and something just clicks within them. and, And then of course, like you said, they, you get the thank you. And it's like, Mm-mm, I didn't do that. You did that. You allowed that connection to happen. And I, you know, if I could, if I was the compass for that, then fantastic, but you got yourself there. So yeah, that's, that's all, what I always tell, you know, my clients that they're like, Oh my God, you saved my life. But no, I didn't. Absolutely. Fucking not. That was not me. That was you. You, you allowed your brain to consider the possibility that recovery is possible. And 
you listened and you made the connections. That's it. You did that. I didn't do that. So yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that that's the difference between you and I, and then, you know, there, there are coaches out there that want to, they want people to say, you saved my life. They, they want that glory and, and, you know, that's on them, but that's, uh, that's not my style. I think that can be dangerous. I think that Mm -hmm. can be really dangerous. And I think, you know, like, you know, that that's, that's what, that's what worries me sometimes is that I don't, I don't want to share an image here, you know, in, in my content, in my podcast or anything that I do that, you know, I want to create leaders and healers for the future, but I don't want people to look at it and say, I need to be thanked for what I do. I need to be, uh, I need people to be grateful because I've seen that so much in my life. You know, I've had, I've had people in my life that said, you know, you're not grateful enough for what you have. You're not grateful enough for what I've given you. And it's like, like gratitude is, is such a, I think a misunderstood concept that there's this, you know, it, it becomes so connected with the idea and the concept of love in our, in our lives, in our relationships, that um, if someone gives us something, we're supposed to be grateful for it. Um, and I know I like, even now I struggle that with that, with my son. Um, and I'm learning to kind of take a step back and say, you know, he doesn't have to be grateful. He doesn't even understand the concept of gratitude right now. He doesn't understand to be grateful for life because he doesn't understand life, you know? And I think it's so misunderstood and it's used and misused, uh, quite often to where, you know, if someone does something for you, you're supposed to be grateful for it. And quite frankly, I think that's a, um, in many regards, it's manipulation. It's a, it's, it's used in a way where the only reason I do things is to be is to have people to be grateful to me, to be supportive of me. Um, and I need that gratitude for me to understand what I need to do in the world. And I think people yeah. have that backwards. I think people really need to understand who they are. They need to understand their identity, where they came from, to appropriate where exactly they want to give because when their giving comes from a place of identity rather than from a place of gratitude, you actually start to understand how to be happy with yourself and to be proud of yourself and to be supportive of yourself. And then everyone else just tells you, okay, this is what is, is really good to talk about, which really helps people, which really kind of narrows down my message. And it's not necessarily that you can't step outside of that. It's just that you know what people are looking for, what people need to hear. And that's what keeps you kind of sane. But there's always a little bit of insanity you want to give in there, right? Like I made a video this morning that I'm going to post later today. It was super insane of me. Um, very different for me. Um, but I love it. Like that's my own kind of quirkiness of, you know, of using an accent, being kind of funny and talking about the same stuff I talk about in a different way. And that becomes security in itself is that you, you come from a place of identity rather than a place of, okay, I'm doing something to please this person to make, make sure they see that I'm grateful to it. 
And that's bullshit because that creates a separate identity you have to fill and you can't focus on your own. It's fucked up. Well, and when you think about it, you know, the purest of intentions are never transactional. Yeah. Never. I love that. If you truly want to help people and that is your goal that, and that is your, your pure heart of heart intentions, it is not transactional. You don't need anything in return. I mean, now do we get paid for our coaching? Certainly. Cause we have to eat right. and have I been made to feel guilty about that for sure. And Absolutely. do I question myself sometimes because, you know, should I be doing it as a nonprofit? I would love to, but I don't have the manpower for that. I'm right. a one person show. Right. And it's not that so, fucking simple. Exactly. You know, I, I got to eat, you yeah. know, I have a kid to feed and, and, and I, most of our stuff is free anyway. We, we put out content right. like daily. <laughs> oh, God, we talk, yeah. we, this podcast is free. Everything. Most I, most of the shit yeah. I do is free, right? Like yeah, I just spent an hour on a TikTok live, just talking about this stuff. Yeah. And you know, my, my one-on-one coaching is a lot more intense and we do daily check-ins and all of those things. But um, yeah. And I even had somebody question the, the audacity of my business name, right? life saver wellness. Somebody was like, well, that's pretty bold to say that you're out there saving lives. And I said, no, 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 you've got it backwards. It's about them. They're the life savers. They're the ones out there saving people's lives. Yeah. And I'm just here for their wellness. Yeah. So yeah, I've, it's, it's a fine line to toe. And I, I, you know, there, there's always going to be people with misconceptions, but truly, um, you know, I, I think, and I can feel that, that vibe from you that it, the purest of intentions are never transactional. It, it's just, you know, like that's you should, my goal is to help people. I feel like you should have saved that for the, for the last question. That's such a, <laughs> that's such a profound statement. Like that it just came out. I don't know. <laughs> that, that was beautiful. I, I do that too. Like I, every once in a while, I just like say something and people are like, Whoa, that's really good. Oh, yeah. I'm like, right. Like, like I lightning in a bottle. Like, that was really good. <laughs> no, I love that. <laughs> like, that's such a, that's such a profound statement. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely, uh, contemplate that one and kind of mill that one. Cause that one's when, you know, you know, that's, that's a good statement. Well, yeah, because I mean, we, we have to stop expecting things from people. Yeah. 100%. And that is something that I, I don't know if you've attended save a warrior, but that is something that save a warrior taught me. Um, so you got to stop expecting things from other people. It's, uh, it's dangerous. I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Kind of random, but, but it's, it's along these same lines. How do you define love? Ooh. Big question, right? I'm going to start asking this to every, every that is guest. like the most broad question. Um, <laughs> you might have me stumped. Isn't that a uh, hard question? So this is, this is a, this is something I do with every, almost every single client I've ever worked with. If we, if we maintain our relationship for any, any amount of time, because obviously relationships are built more or less on the concept of love, but we don't have a working definition. I have never had anyone answer that question outside of like that response of like, <laughs> I don't know. Just just completely baffled and uh, doesn't yeah. doesn't that amaze you? Yeah. Like, well, nope. because so is it? You, you got to think about it this way. Is it a verb? Does it matter? Or 
is it it does i don't know think about this like love (laughs) love is a value isn't it it can be love is a value a principle it's it's love is what it means to you so does it do you have to know the dictionary definition of whether it's a noun or a verb or an adjective or whatever it's what does your definition mean to you but if we're to okay so here here's my super literal thinking because my husband tells me all the time i'm way too literal because you said the word define sure i then went into is it okay so am i defining it as a verb or a noun or an and a pronoun or like i don't even know like so yeah that's that's so interesting because then what, i'm thinking about the different so then, ways that we love what does is love mean to you everything i, I mean i i, I it, that's as even though that is the most broad thing I could say, that's truly it's everything. And I can tell you, you know, there was a time in my life where I would never, I was never able to accept love and I wasn't able to give it. And once I was able to start loving myself, I was able to make those connections because I, I had a, when you have such a tremendous loss in your life, as you know, it is so vulnerable and scary to consider loving or allowing yourself to be loved because you could lose it. Right. And once I started to love myself, I started to just unconditionally without transaction, love other people and allow myself to make those connections as vulnerable and scary as hell as that was. That's where we live. That's where we're truly alive is being able to build those connections with people. Because when you're not, you're just a shell of yourself. Right. But I still don't have a definition. (laughs) I'll give you mine. Because I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this. And actually, me and my wife have talked about this, this quite a lot. So I got this originally from my mom. My mom gave me the start of it. And I, I think I finished it. Lo- she gave me love as action. Right. And, and that made sense to me. But it also, I thought it was missing something. And so I added love as action without expectation. Mm. And, and so how I define it is very much how I apply it. Right. Um, you can certainly look up the dictionary definition and you'll be probably disappointed because dictionary definitions are not functional, right? They define <laughs> the word in a sentence, but, but to be a functional value, I think you really need to look at what it means. And you've already said it, right? It's unconditional. It's non-transactional. Um, and that's what it is, right? Like that to me, I get, it's a one-way street for me, right? So me and my wife have a relationship. We have a marriage. And how I apply love to that marriage is I give to her without expectations. I don't expect her to do anything for me. If she does, awesome. Um, But at the end of the day, I do not expect her to do anything for me. Um, Do I forget to do things for myself and she covers down on me? Absolutely. Um, And that's kind of how I know that she's willing to do the same for me. Um, so I continue to give to her in many different directions without ever expecting her to do anything for me. Now there has to be expectations in the relationship. That's how I think the relationship 
needs to be where the expectations are maintained, right? There has to be boundaries, right? But giving love is a completely separate entity to that in my mind, because you can love someone you're not in a relationship with. You, You can love someone that you do not want to have any contact with anymore, right? You can have those, those feelings because giving isn't just an external projection. It's an Mm -hmm. internal projection as well. It's, it's this, I really do love this person, but I, I need to separate myself from them because, and and I'm going to give that some thought. I'm going to give them thought because I appreciate what they've given to me. I appreciate what they've done for me. Um, But at the end of the day, I also know that they are, are unwilling to change. They are unwilling to, to be a part of this relationship. They're unwilling to connect on, on a level that I need. Um, so the relationship has to take the burden of the expectations. Right. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. really interesting to see how people grow through that. You know, I see people with, with all sorts of different kinds of parents, right. And parenting is so interesting to me, um, that, the expectations that parents have on their kids is crushing mm-hmm. more often than not. I, I rarely mm-hmm. see um, parents look at their kids and say, I have no expectations of you. I, I, am, I am building this life for us. And I, I look at you and say, whatever you want to do, you do it, right? I think you are special. I don't expect you to be exceptional. I don't even expect you to... Um, you know, do what I want you to do. I just want you to understand that we have a relationship relationship here that I, I do offer this. I do have an expectation within our relationship as a family that we communicate effectively, right? And I'm kind of putting in my opinion now, I feel like communication or communication and communicating effectively is the only expectation you should put on your family. Outside of that, telling them what to do, telling them how to live, telling them you think you know best for them is, from my experience and from from the people that I've worked with, is one of the harshest things you can do to your family. Yeah. If you can give them the, the, the space to say, you can tell me literally anything and, and I'm not going to judge you for it, you've created a really powerful family. But hundred percent more. People, and I think most people haven't. Well, and, and, you know, I think it's interesting to dissect the love from the relationship Yeah, because it, it really, you know, there has to be some place where you are able to protect yourself. Yep. Um, and that, and that is within the relationship, but, you know, love. And so now that I'm thinking about it, you know, love is a choice. Love is a choice to, to, you know, you, you said the action, but yeah, it's a, it's a choice. And so I can love somebody that I don't have a relationship with anymore. Um, and then I think about, you know, with parenting, if, if we're putting the expectation and we're putting the relationship layered on top of the love, we're only going to foster contempt and shame and disappointment. And Guilt. for a child, those things are crushing Yeah, because you are creating 
a mindset that that person is never going to live up to anything. Yep. And then the things that our brain does and our, our behaviors that we create to feel like we have to validate and, and be the best at everything or we're not worthy. Yeah. Like being, becoming, mm. becoming exceptional and becoming great at something is, is being grateful to your parents. Yeah. Right. It, it, it really begs the question of like, when you, when you really look at your parenting, like how is it being perceived? You know, I, I think of that so often because I'm, I'm a father, I'm a stepfather of a 10 year old. And that is a really hard position to be in sometimes, you know, to, to be able to look at him and say, you know, I love you and actually like functionally apply all of my actions to what that really means is such a complex task. And if you haven't really dissected it, how, how does he perceive love? How does he define love? What does love mean to him? Right. Because when I say I love you, I'm saying it because of what I mean. But to be a parent, because we have to teach our kids what love is, you know, am I teaching him by action that my love is transactional? Or am I teaching him by action that my love is not transactional, that I don't expect Mm -hmm. anything from him? Or, you know, and 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 because I'm a stepfather, right, there's another family in the mix. And so it becomes even more complicated. And this is why I think being, being a, you know, being a step parent is so difficult is because there's a second family, right? And they're going to look at multiple definitions. They're going to, he's going to look at my definition. He's going to look at my wife's definition. He's going to look at his father's definition. He's going to look at maybe his stepmom and her definition. So he might have four different definitions of love that he's not only hearing, but he's also watching. And so how does he choose between the four and how does he functionally apply that to his life? And who does, you know, when he brings it to our house or their house and he sees differing reactions, it's super complicated. It's super hard on a, on a child to, to continue to walk in and out of situations where is love transactional or is it not like, what the fuck do I do? It's, it, I mean, it's, it's remarkable and yeah. Well, and it's, it, it's a really complex um, idea to just to be able to separate the love from the relationship. That's not something I'm sure a kid is capable of. Right. And, you know, cause then you look at this, you look at the situation and you go, well, then if, if my mommy and daddy were in love, what happened? Right. Where, where was the breakdown? Did somebody, were somebody's expectations not met yeah. or, I mean, so you, you try to make sense of this in a 10 no year old brain. No and clue. then, so, you know, we think about, cause my parents got divorced when I was nine or 10. And um, so trying to think back to, you know, at the time I thought, <laughs> and you know, you're a kid. So my thinking was not logical. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I've hit the age where I'm not really that cute anymore and they just, neither one of them wanted me. So they're just going to share me. 
I mean, I thought it was all about me because my world, your world at 10 is, is this big. And so I thought, well, I'm not like, you know, like a, a puppy is cute for a while. And then they're just a dog. And I thought, well, I'm just, I'm just a dog now. Like (laughs) they're just, they just don't want, they just don't want me anymore. And so they're going to bounce me back and forth. And I mean, it, it looking back, that makes no sense, but at the time, you know, and so now it was rational is absolutely rational. There was cause and effect there. Well, I I suppose, but, um, definitely not logical. So, uh, but now, you know, my, my little guy is almost three and we're, we're getting into the stages of being able to communicate feelings and, yeah. you know, not, not in a complex way, you know, it's like, I'm tired or Luca sad or whatever. And, um, but I, you know, my husband and I talk constantly about how to navigate the way that we parent so that we're on the same page. And, you know, I, I do put expectations on him, but I'm, it doesn't affect my love for him, of course. Um, but you know, I, I want my child to have good manners. And so I ask him, you know, please say thank you and please, and you know, whatever, excuse me. But in his mind, you know, this really has me thinking now in his mind, he is not able or capable of, of separating the expectations and the love. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I really need to be, you know, cognizant of as, as he starts to grow up. And, um, I love that. I I think that that's so important to recognize that there is a distinction. Yeah. I I've been thinking about this a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cause I mean, in, in my own, in my own life and in my own world, obviously, like I've been thinking about what it meant to love since my dad said it for the last time, you know, and I had to really, I had to really define what that meant because in, in essence, he lied to me in, in my rational kind of thinking in that moment, you know, he said, I love you. And there was a part of me that, that knew that he wasn't coming home that day, you know, when, mm-hmm. when he said that to me. And so for the longest time. And it's kind of this very similar situation to you is like my rational brain said, I didn't stop him. And so Mm. it was my fault. And also he said, I love you. And then he left me. And so like the, the confusion of having two different sides of the story say it was your fault, but he also lied to you. Like trying to make sense of that at six years old, there was no logic there. It was just this rational kind of thinking of that feeling is valid. And so is this one. And so you should be ashamed of yourself and you should feel guilty, you know, because you knew, you know, and and so I, I built this castle of shame and regret and guilt. And I never had the ability to express that and talk about that um, and, and open up about that. And the, quite frankly, the logic never came around until I actually put a gun to my own head and, and had to actually address this feeling of it wasn't my fault because for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, like looking back on my story for the first time, I actually felt like I was connected to my father when I put a gun to my head. There was, there was a 
a very big eye-opening moment where I was like, I know how my dad felt that day because, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't the same. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, you can never be 100% empathetic to a situation that someone else goes through, but I got as close as I can. You know, I knew what it, what it felt like to be, um, to, to, to see other people in pain because of me, to see other people suffering because of me. I had recently broken up with my girlfriend. I was kind of struggling with a relationship with my mom. Um, same with my sister. Um, I was just, I was just in a bad place and it, it got to a point where I was like, well, what's, what's the, what's the point anymore? What's the point waiting around for, for something to kill me? Why not? And so I got to that point and, you know, for the, for the first time, I really thought about what my, what my father felt. And my father was an alcoholic. He was a, you know, he's, he did drugs. He did, um, you know, he's a, a, a chain smoker. Um, he was, you know, he's going through a lot of different things. He had, he, I think he was going to get diagnosed with bipolar. Um, he had severe depression. Um, and I was not in that state. Like I, from, from the onset of, or from, since my father committed suicide, I told myself I would never drink. I would never do drugs and I would never do tobacco. And I, I would never commit suicide. Those are four rules I set for myself. I've adhered to all of them, you know? And at the time I, I had to, I was looking at myself and I was like, I, I've followed all those rules. I'm not like him, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm in a place where I'm about to make a decision that was like him, but I have not made decisions like him. And so I'm not that kind of man. I'm not that kind of person. I may have hurt people, but maybe I need to really rethink. Was that hurt necessary? Was that hurt um, for me, you know, to grow? And was it something that they can benefit from? Like I had to really rethink about like, um, you know, what did it mean to, to be in that situation? And what did the guilt mean? What did the shame mean? What did the regret mean? Were those things actually logical? Cause I'd never really decompressed from what that moment meant for me. I'd thought about it every day for, for 20 years. I had never actually talked about it. I would be able to tell people my dad committed suicide when I was six, but not one single person ever got me to talk about what that day was like. And for the first time, you know, um, I don't really remember if I, I don't remember if I had that conversation with my mom or, uh, or family or anything like that. But for the first time, I actually told my mom like three, three days later, I told my, my sister, my two best friends and my mom that I was, that I had almost committed suicide, you know, a day or two ago. Um, and those were, you know, my mom was the hardest conversation I've ever had to have in my life. Like since then, like nothing compares, like you can put me on stage with like 20,000 people and nothing will compare to trying to tell your mom that you almost committed suicide 20, almost 20 years after your dad committed suicide. It's like, you know, that's, that's a brutal thing to talk about. Um, and I couldn't say it in words. I had to write it down and give it to her and then just cry, you know? Um, but yeah, when I really think about it, like it's, as a kid, it's rational. It, it's just, mm -hmm. it's, ra it's pure rationality. There's no logic there. I don't, I don't even know if my son really understands the logic yet. I think he's, he's getting there, you know, 10 years old is still quite young. 
Um, and I think he is developing the understanding of, oh, that's not something I really need to focus on. You know, that's not something I really need to build up. I don't need to hate myself for making a mistake, you know, because someone wanted me to do this. I need to learn how to adapt. I need to learn how to grow. I need to learn how to, you know, not suppress this and feel this, you know, and, and shape those thoughts. And it's, it is really interesting, you know, watching my son do it and, and see the difference in, you know, how he's actually understanding rationality versus logic. And I think that's, you know, the love is interesting, but I think that is even more interesting is that, that, that use of logic. And when, when does that start happening? It's really interesting to me. Well, and as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, you said it wasn't until you were in that same situation that you connected with your dad. And at that point, I'm sure you, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I can imagine at that point you realized that what was going on with you was nobody else's fault and that you probably, hopefully clicked that, that his actions were not your fault. Right. And, you know, but I, I agree. It's very interesting to start thinking about um, the rationale and the logic because you created a strategy. Yeah. You thought, well, okay, he drank and he smoked and, and these, these are the things that I, I think maybe contributed. So I'm going to create a strategy and I'm not going to do those things. And that's going to keep me from, from that place. And I think that sometimes the biggest threat to us is that which we do not perceive. Yeah. And so, you know, when we think we've created a strategy and we're good and we've compartmentalized and we've done this and we've done that, that I'm good. And then all of a sudden it smacks you in the back of the head and you're like, right. oh, wait, my strategy's not working. Right. I have to be honest with myself. That sucks. How do I do that? Right. It's, it's, I, it's the moment where like, you know, you know, you, you get hit in the face and you never thought, you know, it's, it's such a rational thing to do is to create that strategy and say, this will solve all my problems. And the reality is, is if you, if you don't realize it by now, that change is the only thing that is consistent throughout your life. And you have to be willing to look at your strategy and say, this is not always going to work. Mm-hmm. And as we, as we age and as we grow our life, our lives are so drastically different from when we're seven years old to when we're 26 years old to, you know, I'm, I'm reaching, I'm getting to mid thirties, but it's, it's going to continue to change. I know that. And I have to be able to look at different strategies and, and understand and learn from different people how to survive them. And change is hard. I mean, yeah. my strategy was, you know, cause as a child, I, I was an only child out in the middle of nowhere. I only had like three channels till I was 14 years old. Um, and my parents got divorced when I was nine or 10. And, uh, so I felt alone often mm-hmm. and that probably it, you know, I wasn't truly alone, but I felt that. And so my strategy was, well, that's just, that's just who I'm going to be. And I'll, I'll choose to be alone. I'll take my power back and I'll choose to be alone and I'll shut people out. 
So that's what I did. That was my strategy. I shut people out and I was the lone wolf. And, uh, you know, I had, I had friends, but I was, I was that person that just kind of floated between clicks and never really got close to anybody. Right. And what I started to realize was, you know, even though I I had been like long-term relationships and, um, you know, I always, I never truly allowed myself to connect with people because I was scared to death that they were going to leave. I experienced, you know, deaths of family members, but, you know, they were great grandparents. So they had had full lives and, and that was kind of to be expected. But in my mind, I didn't know that I wasn't prepared. And then, um, leading up to my, my best friend, um, taking her own life. There were two other suicides within our community very, that, of people that I knew um, each, each year. There were three in a row and um, she was the third. And so I really, I mean, it just continued to prove that my strategy was, was working, right? right. I, like, I just won't get close to these people and, and, and I won't get hurt. Um, but I was robbing myself of truly living. And to this day, it is so hard for me to truly connect with people because I, I get scared, Yeah. but I have to, I have to just love them anyway. And, um, I, so I force myself, you know, to get out of the box and just open up. And that is always where I find my biggest reward yeah. it is just connection with people. And so it's, it's interesting how we create these strategies and, uh, you know, then we get proven that, you know, maybe they don't work so well, but <laughs> it's, it's real easy to justify a bad strategy. That's oh, sure. <laughs> you know, like you look at, you look at your life and you're like, man, I justified that for far too long mm-hmm. you know? cause it's really easy. It's really easy to make, you know, comfortable things work. Um, but it's really, it's really hard to justify a good strategy. It's really hard, you know, because what? it's, it's constant work, you know, it's, it's constant yeah. action. If you want to talk about self-love, like self-love is action. I think action with expectations on yourself, because you have to be able to expect yourself, you know, obviously healthy expectations of saying, I have to be proud of myself. I have to be uh, willing to change. I have to be willing to adapt. I have to be willing to feel, you know, and, and it's the action. I have to do these things for myself because when you stop doing things for yourself is usually when you disconnect, excuse me, disconnect from people and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, start creating strategies that are really easy to be, uh, justified. And typically those are the bad ones that, that allow you to live your life comfortably, but in a, which is interesting because comfortably and (laughs) happily are different things. Oh yeah. And we'll live in uncomfortable pain, um, quite comfortably, which is really, really remarkable. Well, and I think that that goes to, um, you know, not feeling like we're worthy of, of being comfortable. Like there's some kind of like romanticizing that happens, like, you know, the, the romanticizing the struggle. Yeah. 
where, and I'm trying to put words to this, but um, I think the self feel, we, we feel like if we're struggling, then there there's we're making progress. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think that's such a self-development, like motivation, inspiration. Like I think the last 20 years of like YouTube and idolizing the hustle and the struggle and the pain and the gain have, have left holes in the self-development industry where like one of the things that I've started to do with my clients is like, we focused on what I, you know, I always thought was self-development. And then I realized that people were so focused on self-correcting behaviors Mm. that they forgot to say, I'm proud of you for doing that. Yeah. Because they were, they were just, it was just trans transitioning from one painful situation to another, Hey, another painful situation of, Hey, you need to consistently make progress to feel better about yourself. And that's mm-hmm. completely baffling to me is that I didn't see that right away. And I started doing with my clients was, Hey, for 10 minutes a night, write down something you're proud of, right? doesn't have to be from today. If you can't find, if you're having a bad day and you can't find anything to be proud of, look at yesterday, look at two weeks ago and see, you know, look at 17 years ago when you graduated high school. Are you proud of yourself for that? Then write it down. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go back every week and read them, you know, and, and some of my clients are like, Dylan, I hate you. I I hate you because that's the hardest thing I can actually try to do for myself is Mm -hmm. actually look at the things I'm proud of because I want to say, I'm not proud of myself for anything. And I'm like Mm -hmm. change, right? It's, it's the Mm -hmm. action. Like you have to start doing things. You want to, you want to correct one of the hardest behaviors appreciate yourself. Self, yeah. self-appreciation is, is it's not gratitude. It's not, I'm thankful for me. It's, I appreciate the effort. I appreciate what I've had to do to survive. I appreciate who I am as a person, my identity. I appreciate my, you know, my quirky humor. I appreciate my empathy. I appreciate all the integrity that I have put forth over the past seven years that I didn't have for the first 19 years after my dad died, you know, like that stuff is looking deeper within yourself and actually appreciating who you are, I think is the best self-development that you can do for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talk about, you know, personal growth and personal development and people are like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to fix? And it's like, (laughs) they, they want you to give them the checklist Yep. and it's like, okay, Let's pause. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment and give yourself permission to love yourself. Give yourself permission to feel comfortable with who you are. And then we'll work on the checklist later. But so often we, you know, and I'm the same way. Like I mentioned before, I I left full-time law enforcement, high-speed, low drag, and I I went right into piling on all of these things that were totally unnecessary. I mean, the wedding was pretty necessary, but you know, I didn't have to do all of that at the same time, but we do that to ourselves. And I, it's, it's kind of a form of numbing. Mm -hmm. Like if I can focus on the task, then I don't have to, you know, maybe then I won't have to focus on really feeling my feelings. I just focus on the thing. 
you know, the journaling, the, the meditation, the, you know, but really all of those things are just avenues to get to that. And sometimes I think we forget to pause and, uh, that's, that's my biggest thing is, is to just get people to pause, especially as first responders, because we just go and go and go. And I call it being a chain achiever because you're like, well, you know, I got this one thing I got going on and then I'll, you know, take a break, but you don't because three days before that thing's done, you're looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, uh, I get it, you know, and I, you know, not only, not only that, I want to, I want to bring this in is especially first responders and military specifically. And certainly this, this applies to other places, but I think these two communities specifically, if we aren't a part of the, if we aren't a part of actively working, Mm. we're, 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 failing the team, right? We're, we're failing the people around us. We're, we're, um, letting others down We're you know, it's, it's, it's that, when do you, when do you shut that off? When do you say, you know what? Someone else can pick up the reins. Someone else has mm-hmm. to step up, right? It, it's, and, and on the contrary, you want to talk about the stigma within both communities is if you're not good enough, you're, you're going to get people hurt. You're going to get people killed. And you know, that might be a fair statement, but at the same time, it's not a beneficial statement for the people that are actually struggling. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a, it's a difficult conversation to have with, with alphas, you know, I I hate using that term. Like I, I, cause I don't, I don't agree with it. Um, I just say probably warriors. It's a, it's hard conversation to have with warriors, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, warriors just want to, just want to fight. They, they just want to get, you know, they you want to, do, they just want to get you have to dominate. You have to win. You have yeah. to be the best or your, you know, your life is on the line. And, um, we, you know, that's drilled into us in our training yeah. that you go home, right. you go home at the end of the day. And so there, there's no room for error. Yeah. One and, of, uh, that's a lot of pressure. That's yeah. a lot. And, you know, one of the things I talk about, I, I give suicide awareness and prevention briefs now in the, in the military because of what I do now. Um, one of the things I talk about, like when I usually give those briefs, we're usually in an armory safe and sound in Wisconsin. I'm like, where are we? You know, people are like, is that a trick question? You know, like <laughs> we're, we're in the armory, right? We're in Wisconsin. I'm like, are we in Afghanistan? Are we in Iraq? Are we in Syria? Are we in places where if, if we say we're struggling, we're letting, we're literally letting people down. Right. And, and the answer is no, we're not in that fucking place. We're not in a war zone. We're not in a place where if we say I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time. We're letting people down. We're not, we're not in that place. And it's such an important thing to make that distinction of saying, you know, if you're, if you're on a call, if you're on deployment, if you're on some, if you're in a place where there is legitimate uh, physical danger around you, it's not the place to ask for help, right? Like mental health wise, right? Certainly call for backup. That's, that's a different kind of help though. But when we're talking about mental health, this is not the place. It's just functional because that's where people can get hurt. But if you're, if you're done, if you're off duty and you say, Hey, I'm struggling, right? Or if you end your shift and you're like, Hey, I'm struggling. It's how we deal with that, right? Like I see 
I see throughout my career leadership having a choice and that's a fucking problem, right? To me, leadership is a fucking obligation. And if you look at it any other, any other way, you're letting people down yourself, right? Like you, you need to look at people as a leader and say, I'm obligated to be supportive of you, whether I agree with you or not. Right. So if you're struggling, I need to be there for you. But in the military, what I've seen uh, for a long time, and it's, it caused problems, you know, I'm, I'm wearing a, a wristband with, with five names on it because of it. What I would see is people became like playing cards, right? I've got this, this, I've, I've gotten eight cards in my hand as a squad leader. These are my guys. Well, the, the ace of clubs is struggling. He's, he's going through some stuff at home. He failed his PT test. Well, you know what? I'm going to give that guy to headquarters because he's a, he's a weak link, right? He's, he's a shit bag. He, he can't pass his PT test, which means he's useless to us. Well, as a leader, if you have that choice, then you're, you're not showing this person that you're obligated to support them. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're given the choice. And so what are you going to do? Like, I want the best guys, obviously, because we live in the society that, you know, we're, we're trying to make fucking NFL draft day in the military or, or on, in the cop shop. Like we're trying to figure out who are the guys that I want to be, you know, the leader of so that I can advance my career or I can, you know, make the best of my, my life. And then you get that choice and you give that guy away. And that shouldn't be how it runs as a leader. I don't care what kind of leadership it is. I, you should not be giving up people because they're hard hardships on you, right? Mm-hmm. You should be, you should be focusing on how to develop that person if there's no other way. Right. And it's a mutual understanding of like, you know, Dylan just does not have what I'm looking for in terms of leadership. And then I look at him and I'm like, I, I don't know how to talk to you. I don't know how to help you. Uh, let's talk about maybe moving you to someone that does. Is there someone that you can work with that you appreciate, that appreciates you, that you have respect for, that they have respect for you? That's how the conversation I think should be managed, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. this guy's a shit bag. I don't want him anymore. I can't deal with him. I didn't, you, you didn't even fucking try. First of all, you, maybe you counseled him or you, you wrote him up and you said, Hey, you need to do better. But you never asked like, Hey, how's home life? You know, what's, what's going on, you know, and sat with him for two years and said, I'm going to work with you. I'm, I'm going to be here for you. I know I may not get through to you, but I, I, I promise you like being a cop, being in the military, being a paramedic, being a firefighter is not the only thing that you're helping as a leader. And if you're willing to sit with people, if you're willing to work with people, they may not be cut out for the jobs that we're doing. They may not be the warrior that they want, they thought they could be. And so they may exit the military. They may exit the, the policing community or the paramedic community or the firefighting community. And someday they'll call you, you know, this has, this has happened to me. They'll, they'll message you on Facebook and be like, what you did for me, even though I failed in the, in the long run, what you did for me allowed me to see my value and to see my worth as a human being and, and to focus on what I needed to change to, to make myself a better human being for myself. 
rather than be, you can't hack it in the military. You're a worthless human being. You, you know, you shouldn't even, you shouldn't even try anymore. You should give up. You should go to headquarters and you should, you know, you should fuck off. Right. How we walk people out of these professions is fundamentally important for society. Mm-hmm. And, and like, it is, it is powerful to really realize that as a leader, if you aren't showing the obligation to the people that you manage and you support and you lead, like, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's hard to watch sometimes when, when people have these expectations of being perfect in under my leadership, like you have to be this person. And I just, I don't understand it. Like, I understand people want results, but at the same time, like we're, we're human beings, we're going to fuck it up. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, a lot of people get into um, leadership positions um, because they want the rank. Yeah. It's not because they want to lead yeah. and support and encourage and, um, and, you know, that's, that's their prerogative, but at the same time, they do have that obligation. And I don't think we're training supervisors with that mindset. I think it's just, okay, you're in charge now. Yeah. A- and there's no more thought given to it than that. And, um, that's a problem. That's definitely something that needs to be addressed. And, you know, in, in my agency trainings, I, always, whether it's, uh, the beat the burnout training or my, uh, suicide prevention and awareness, I make sure that all ranks are going through it. Yeah. All ranks, because just because you're a Lieutenant doesn't mean you don't have to sit through the suicide awareness and prevention. You should be sitting in it before your guys, because you're the one that need that has the obligation to watch out for these things and have that hard conversation if somebody's struggling. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, those are definitely, you know, concerns in both the first responder world and the military that the, just because you have rank doesn't mean that you're only a supervisor. You're also a leader and you have that, that responsibility to them as humans, not just as soldiers or cops or, you know, but as, as a, a real person, you know, underneath the uniform. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the hardest thing sometimes is, is watching this expectation of, of the work that we're supposed to do is supposed to be perfect. You know, we're always trying to reach that, that magical number of 100%, whether it's for readiness or, you know, you know, when you go through a squad lane or you go through some, something, you always want all of your guys to be hundred percent, right. You gotta, you can hundred percent go, you gotta be the best. Um, and the reality is, is I don't need them to be the hundred percent best on the training lane. I need them to be the best on deployment. And mm-hmm. even then I can't expect them to always be the best. And that's why I need them to communicate. It's just like a family to me. You know, if you can create a family that communicates, if you can create a squad that communicates, then guys will cover down for each other. Guys will support each other. The guys will help each other out and look out for each other and come up to me and say, Hey, you know, uh, Smith is not looking so good today. Uh, maybe you should have a conversation with him, see if he's actually ready to go out on mission. And I go mm-hmm. have that conversation. And Smith is willing to say, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. 
And mm-hmm. I'd be, I, I, with no judgment say, stay back. We'll figure this one out. Right. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. pull someone in, you know, or, um, you know, we figure that out, like having the ability to, to have those conversations will it be convenient for everybody else. No. Right. But when you, when you understand that everyone is in a different aspect of their life or a different time frame of their life, like you start to give people a little bit more grace and a little bit more, you know, not necessarily forgiveness, but empathy, you know, mm-hmm. I don't like forgiveness. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think forgiveness is a, is a stupid idea, you know, <laughs> personally, like, because what they're supposed to apologize because they've been through a bunch of shit. Right. Like, how does that make sense? You know, like people are going to, people are going to fuck up. They're going to get it wrong. And if you expect someone to apologize for feeling what they're feeling, that's just going to make things probably worse. It's, it's going to make yeah. them not want to be around you. It's going to make them disconnect. So I don't want to, I don't want to ask for them to be sorry. So I can forgive them. Like, I want to empathize with them so I can understand, all right, your intention was not to hurt me. If your intention was to hurt me and you feel bad about it, I would expect you to apologize. If your intention was to hurt me and you don't want to apologize, I'll forgive you on my own time and I'll deal with that boundary in its own way. But I, I just, I, forgiveness is such an interesting thing that we've built up so much in, in our relationships that I think it's just like gratitude. It's almost a questionable uh use of our time no it's i think it's become a buzzword kind of like gratitude but but you know when you think about those pressures of not not being able to mess up or being 100 percent perfect you know we are our jobs are abnormal and uh it's a high stakes game you know there's lives on the line right but at the same time um we do need to recognize that that we're dealing with humans and not a bunch of robots, right. you know, and there's, there's a lot of variables and things can get messy, but if you're not prepared for that, then you shouldn't be in a leadership position. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow for some people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a real tough. Pill oh yeah. To well, and I think, you know, we, when we talk about this stuff, people think, you know, it's going to, it's going to make people soft. And, you know, that's, that's why some of my stuff's a hard sell because, you know, I'm talking about mindfulness tactics and they're like, Oh my God, you're going to, you're going to turn us into a bunch of hippies. And (laughs) like, no, it, it, it sharpens you because it, when you're more self-aware, you can be more confident, you can be more precise and you just revert right back to your training and you don't question yourself. And, uh, it's so but it's such a different approach that, that people just shy away from it because right. it, it's, you know, it's going to make us soft and we have to do things like they did 30 years ago. And I'm like, well, those worked so well, right? you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel you. Well, how do you feel? What do you think? We've been, we've been talking for almost an hour and a half, mm-hmm. if not, if not close to it. Do you have any, do you have any words, um, further words that you want to discuss or anything that you want to share, or should we ask, should we ask the final question? Oh, the final question. Have you thought about it? I think we just do it. I thought about it a little bit. Um, and it, it pertains 
Well, I'll let you ask it first. Yeah. Amanda K. AK. <laughs> I love that. I love AK. Um, if there was a message you could leave the world, what would it be? Be kinder to yourself. And to dive just a little bit deeper, we um, so often, you know, it's really become a buzz phrase to say to humanize the badge because we want people to see us as human, right? Um, in law enforcement. And I would challenge you to really think about that in a more complex way because we need to humanize ourselves before we can expect anybody else to see us that way. And we need to be kinder to ourselves and allow ourselves, give ourselves permission to be human. And so that starts with within, and it starts by being kinder to ourselves. And I think everybody, first responder, military, civilian, whatever, we just need to be kinder to ourselves. That's really profound. I like that. I like the the humanize, the deeper kind of intricacy of humanizing the badge of humanizing yourself first. And I love that. Oh, for sure. Because we don't, we expect yeah. other people to see us as humans so they can forgive us for our mistakes, but we don't forgive ourselves. Yeah. We don't. And you know, there's that word forgiveness again, but we don't, we don't allow ourselves permission to make mistakes. Right. And, uh, we really, you know, it, yes, it's a high stakes game and uh, lives are on the line. But if we're not kinder to ourselves, then that perpetuates a whole nother issue where lives are on the line in our own hands. Yeah. Well, I love that. I, I mean, I've, I've loved this conversation. This has been this has been awesome. Um, clearly, we we very much align on many, many things. And it's it's really good to see. Um yeah, I, I hope that someone takes something from this. I hope some I hope people find this episode really, really engaging and really useful for them. Um, because it's certainly it was a great conversation to understand more about what you do and how you do it. Um, because it's such a difficult community to have that conversation in. And I, I applaud you for for not only attempting it, but being successful in it. And I hope hope you only more success because it, it needs to, it needs to happen. We both know that. Um, but thank you, Amanda. Well, and thank you. Thank you for what you do, because, you know, I, I, like I said, I just started this a few months ago. And so seeing, you know, people like yourself kind of paving the way and, and, uh, you know, putting yourself out there too is, is huge because it lets me know that it's possible. And so I appreciate you. And I, you know, it's funny because I'm like, I've only been doing this for two years. So like, I don't feel like I've been doing it that long, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess the world war, you know, is so fast today that that's, that's how quick it can happen is, you know, which is exciting. That's, that's my goal. Yeah. I want, I want more, more of us, um, yes. you know, more of us that can be, that can question the naysayers and, and, and push back against, against the departments or the leaders or you know, the, the misinformation uh, about what we do and what we talk about and, and just, yeah, I love it. I'm glad there's, I'm glad there's yeah. you and I'm glad there's me. I'm glad there's more people kind of stepping up and, and sharing their stories and talking about this stuff. And, you know, if, if you're in the audience out there and you're kind of listening to this, um, I, I, 
I implore you, you know, look deeper, look deeper at yourself, look deeper at, you know, what we've been talking about. Answer that question. What is love to you? You know, ask the, what is, what does it mean to be human to you? You know, like all of these questions that we've been talking about today are really fundamental and foundational for identity and, you know, understanding how to build bigger and better relationships. So yeah, I, I love this. This was a great conversation, Amanda. This is great. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. This has been fun. Yeah. Well, I like when I can talk to people and we're on the same wavelength and it just flows and that's yeah. exactly what happened today. So I have, I have no doubt we'll be doing it again at some point. Um, and Sounds if there's, good. if there's ever anything <laughs> that, you know, you want to promote or you want to bring out, just absolutely get in touch with me. We'll, we'll do it again, but cool. let me close this out. Uh, if you've paid attention this long, don't forget to check out, uh, Amanda Kay's, uh, website, which is www.lifesaverwellness.com. Correct. Check yes, that sir. out. Um, she's on Instagram. She's on TikTok. I actually found her on Instagram. Um, she's got great content. Just check that out. Um, but again, for you, those of you that are listening, thank you very much for joining me and we will see you next time on the Dylan experience. Boom. There it is.